Cool. So we're going to continue on with the use of pleasure. So to reiterate, the second volume to the history of sexuality. Uh, now we'll be, move from the second part titled Dietetics. Dietics. Dietetics. So the Scientologist in me is uh, coming out a little bit. Let me just make sure. No, it is dietetics. Weird. All right. Well, he begins this with a little, like, kind of uh, reiteration of what he had done in the first part, but to kind of, you know, to ground it a little bit, he says that um, there's something quite paradoxical about the way that the Greeks approached sexuality because it seems as though they were taking upon themselves a kind of rigorous ethic, one that regimented and controlled the way that they would engage in sexuality, for instance, uh, but this was not something for them that was a foreclosure of possibility. In fact, this was actually an opening up of a possibility of freedom because freedom was what was associated with a certain degree of virtue, if we could understand it through uh, Aristotle, that could only be attained once someone had a certain degree of control or demonstrated a certain degree of control over their bodies. So what is more, and Foucault writes here rather, rather beautifully, is that they never imagined, that is the Greeks, that sexual pleasure was in itself an evil, or that it could be counted among the natural stigma, stigmata, stigmata of a transgression. And yet their doctors worried over the relationship between sexual activity and health, and they developed an entire theory concerning the dangers of sexual practice. So again, this doesn't actually have to do with anything about sexuality in and of itself, but what essentially was associated with sexuality, and that was the um, I guess the barriers that it posed toward attaining this kind of higher value or this higher uh, degree of virtue or this closer relationship to God in the case of like um, the, you know, second century uh, priests or uh, fathers, um, which, which is something that Foucault expounds upon in the fourth volume. But for, for, for now, dealing with the Greeks, of course, it's clear to note that sexuality could be something that people engaged in if they achieved a certain degree of virtue, where it was not sex in itself that was something to be feared, but rather if sex was something that was done with a certain degree of licentiousness, or it was careless, or people were too promiscuous, or too whatever, that hindered them from attaining that status. So this section, uh, titled Dietetics, deals quite, as the title might suggest, with, with diet, kind of broadly, and what the relationship with food has to do with this attainment of virtue or with um, a general or more broader logic of asceticism. So asceticism, again, is that thing that comes out of Nietzsche, I guess, at least how Foucault takes it up. It's the kind of self-imposition of rules and regulations um, kind of arbitrarily set uh, that are supposed to, if followed, lead someone to some kind of higher virtue or whatever. So as Foucault writes about food, viewed from this perspective, dietetics did represent one modality in medicine, but it did not become an extension of the art of healing until the day when regimen, as a way of life, became separated from nature, and while it always constituted a necessary accompaniment of medicine, 
This was simply because one could not treat a person without rectifying the lifestyle that made him sick in the first place. So one's diet then, as Foucault continues, uh, characterized the way in which one managed one's existence, and it enabled the set of rules to be affixed to conduct. It was a mode of problematization of behavior that was indexed to a nature which had to be preserved and to which it was right to conform. Regimen was a whole art of living. So he gives us quite a few examples then, but one that really stands out is the example of Diocles, uh, for whom the course of an ordinary day, moment by moment, from waking up on through to the evening meal and the onset of sleep, with attention given all along the way to the, fir- to the very first exercises, the ablution- ablutions and massagings of the body and the head, the walks, the private activities in the gymnasium, lunch, napping, another round of walking and gymnasium activities, oiling and massage, dinner, all of these corresponded to a regimen, which makes sense. Sorry for the people moving upstairs. Um, the regimen then corresponds to one's kind of um, regimen, one's, one's routine. So as Diocles has it here, this has to do, dietetics has a very strong association with the body. So it as being associated with the regimen, all the things that are described have to do with, you know, the, the, um, the maintenance of one's physicality in the form of one's muscles or um, cardiovascular health in the, in the, um, through the gym or through walking or, or whatever, and then through one's internal health in the proper way that people eat, um, I guess, and how that will affect them as being a healthy body, and then in a more superfluous way, how the body is to relax through oil and massage. So these three domains come down, or these these components of dietetics come down to the corporal body. But Foucault says that we, while we do have that, that is certainly to be observed in Diocles, we must be careful not to simply dissociate that from the concerns of the soul. And in fact, there was a kind of moral imperative embedded within this regimen or within the logic of dietetics. So he says, in his words, um, uh, between the care given the body and the concern for pre- preserving the purity and harmony of the soul, or they, these two things were correlative to one another. So one such example would be that in the case of uh, medicine or in the case of proper healthy lifestyle or whatever that was intended to keep the body healthy and how music was considered to be something that kept the soul healthy. Foucault says that these two things were necessary to operate in concert with one another in order to re- maintain what, he's, what he calls here an equilibrium of the organism. So there was a necessity to maintain the two. So this uh, equilibrium was necessary because even among the Greeks, as uh, Foucault notes in Plato, there was a, a, a reticence to, uh, or there was careful attention paid to how people should engage in, let's say, physical activity, where if someone were to take physical activity to be their number one concern, and, you know, we can draw parallels um, parallels of that to today, but that's, you know, someone else will do that. Um, yeah, as, as Foucault sees in Plato, Anyone who engaged too much in either side of that dualism, either in the concerns for the body or the soul, and the case he gives is with Plato against 
excessive physical activity, uh, those people would essentially see their, uh, the, their equilibrium get out of whack. And while they would improve themselves in one domain, they would see the other domain, that is the soul in this case, slowly start to diminish. So this striving towards equilibrium didn't necessarily grant people the types of benefits that at least the mo you know, modern human would believe would be valuable. Instead, this attainment of an equilibrium was in the service of a, uh, a, uh, allowing for the city-state, in a sense, or the community to flourish. So there was a kind of connection between the two. So as Foucault says, the distrust of excessive regimens shows that the purpose of diet was not to extend life as far as possible in time, nor as high as possible in performance, but rather to make it useful and happy within the limits that had been set for it. So I suggest that these limits had to do with community or the, what the community would have uh, set up, which, you know, is in part true. You could, you could input other kinds of um, forces into there that would certainly, you know, work. Um, but in this case, I think it's safe to say, especially considering the Greeks and, and Plato specifically, the way that the human was to be considered effective as such and to attain a certain degree of you know, um, usefulness or validity, uh, they were to, in a sense, fulfill the role that they were quote unquote destined for, right? But, you know, the shoemaker, like, I think that's one of the cases Socrates gives, if I'm remembering it correctly, is only going to be that. Like, why should they be anything else? If they're good at making shoes, let them make shoes. So whatever kind of level of equilibrium was necessary for the shoemaker then, was all they needed. They, did, they didn't need to do anything else, right? So any desire to get anywhere else would simply lead that person astray, lead them astray not only from themselves then, but from the community in which they were to be an effective agent as such. So regimen then uh, could be broken into two different categories or two different necessities, where Foucault says that there was a certain degree of vigilance required on the part of the individual, right? As a as I think I've been explaining here fairly coherently, uh, he says that there are two different ways that that was conducted. So he says that firstly, there was serial attention. So serial attention was attention that was given to one's um, kind of uh, own knowledge of their needs of in order to continue performing the way they, they should perform. So he gives the example of someone... Um, uh, uh, da, 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 who, who takes, who ingests or, or goes through a certain food, a type of exercise, a hot or cold bath, would be recommended or advised against according to whether one had engaged in or was about to engage in such or such other activity. The practices that followed one after the other ought to counterbalance one another in their effects, but the contrast between them must not be too extreme. So, you know, within this there was, well, you know, Foucault does illustrate that there were some, there was some kind of outside force in his using of the third person here, um, where you know it, it could have been set up by a kind of community standard, where if you decide to go from um, uh, I don't know wrestling to to eating, you have to undergo this kind of you know it's, it would be important to take a cold bath or whatever to bring you back to a state of equilibrium or to kind of round yourself off in order to be able to keep going throughout your day as yourself. So within that, it comes down to an extent to the person. 
for the person to know exactly what they should need, what they should be getting in order to maintain their own state of equilibrium. So then he contrasts this with what he calls circumstantial vigilance. So this, for him, is a sharply focused yet wide-ranging attention that must be directed towards the external world, its elements, its sensations, the climate, of course, the seasons, the hours of the day, the degree of humidity and dryness, of heat or cold, the winds, the characteristic features of a region, the layout of a city, all of these things are, in a sense, that which guide the individual. So, and what's really striking here is that we certainly see, and this is something that was being built up in the first, um, in the first section, or the first chapter, the first part, uh, is that there was a degree of autonomy. There was an agency demanded of the human that we often attribute to, and I think that certainly Foucault attributed to a kind of 17th or 18th century logic, or uh, locates the genesis of it in the 17th or 18th century, where in fact we can see this now, where the, or now, in, in the Greeks, as far back as the Greeks, where there was a necessity for the person to engage with their surroundings in their own way and to be able to accommodate them as they saw fit. Now, of course, there were parameters and there, like there's no denying that the, there were very, there was very little movement in how the person could actually engage with the world around them. But there was movement nonetheless, which pointed to a certain degree of autonomy. So and then here we enter into what one of Foucault's kind of last or what he says is lastly, uh, his, his observation about dietetics, and it really uh, drives home this idea of individuality in the, in the, as far back as the Greeks, where, and this is kind of a long quote, but it's important. He says that dietetics was a technique of existence in the sense that it was not content to transmit the, the advice of a doctor to an individual who would then be expected to apply it passively. Without going into the history of the dispute between medicine and gymnastics, over the issue of their respective com competence to determine the proper regimen. We must keep in mind that diet was not thought of as an unquestioning obedience to the authority of another. It was intended to be a deliberate practice on the part of an individual involving himself and his body. So I, w I, I would have loved to, you know, read what he had to say about the dispute between gymnastics and um, medicine in the Greek times or I'm sure there are books about that, and I, I just don't know about them. But this is, certainly illustrates this kind of individual character of the Greek person at this time, where, of course, today, one of the guiding forces in our world, something that Foucault has certainly tapped into with the birth of the clinic, is, you know, the unquestioning authority of uh, medical practitioners, doctors in, in almost any capacity, who somehow have a kind of higher knowledge about how things should be conducted. Whereas at this time, it seems as though there was more of an emphasis on the individual's own negotiation with what would be given to them. So this would correspond then to kind of Stuart Hall-like um, act of decoding, like kind of a, a negotiated decoding, right? Where they don't just passively take what is given to them. Instead, they supplant that with some of their own beliefs, some of their own thoughts about what is best for them, because ultimately, no one knows anyone best but themselves. Like, certainly that's very different today. People are very scared to know themselves, or as 
Nietzsche says at the beginning of the genealogy of morality, you know, we are unknown to ourselves, we knowers, which I think rings very true, very true. But I digress. So all of this then, as he says, was it was a whole manner of forming oneself as a subject who had the proper, necessary, and sufficient concern for his body. So in, a, in kind of laying out all these regimens, we see a kind of ostensible birth of, a, of an individual or a kind of Greek subject, which, you know, I could see someone taking some problem with, but let's, for the sake of um, argument, let's say that's what we have. We have a Greek subject that comes out of this sort of regimentation or out of this sort of asceticism imposed upon them. Now we have the problem, or Foucault presents that there was a problem about that, uh, about excess, right? So if one goes too far in any of their um, daily activities or in any of their kind of um, desires, then they would fall out of equilibrium and then they'd be, they'd be screwed, right? So he says that the question was, or that is, in the ancient medical regimens, on the other hand, the variations were gradual, and instead of being organized according to the binary form of permitted and forbidden, they suggest a constant oscillation between more and less. Which is fascinating, because it, it, this would really be uh, opposed to the kind of Christian doctrines that say, you know, you, you can do this, you can't do that, um, so on and so forth. And this can be seen in... Um, with Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, when he he, he almost makes it pretty. Uh, I don't want to lie, and I don't want to dig out my copy, so I won't lie. I'll be as vague as possible. In attaining virtue, Aristotle says that it's not as though one should do X, Y, and Z, and then they'll achieve virtue. For Aristotle, one must attain a degree or must attain the mean. So the mean being the kind of equilibrium that Foucault is talking about. Now the only way one can do that is by having a kind of sufficient knowledge of what would constitute an excess in either direction. So an excess of licentiousness or an excess of idleness, right? So if you're just sitting around doing nothing, you're not attaining equilibrium. But if you're doing too much, then you're going off into the excess. Now for everyone to some extent, this is a little different. So someone can engage in a little bit more idleness than someone else and a little bit more licentiousness than someone else and still be able to attain this degree of virtue. And I think that's what Foucault is saying here. And I know I've, I've kind of strayed away. So let me just reiterate. Uh, we are not dealing with um, a binary between forbidden and allowed or permitted and forbidden. Rather, we are dealing with a binary of more or less. Now, the more or less within that very binary is the suggestion that we may uh, traverse between one and the other, which is found in Aristotle. He, he almost says that it is, it is necessary to engage in a little bit of that moreness or that excess, excess in order to understand it, but not too much, of course. So it's not as though any, any given thing is totally off limits, which is why I think Foucault is looking back on this and saying, hey, look at how the, the, this sort of, you know, individuality was constructed at this time. It wasn't based off of a very pure, or pure, a very strict regimen. Rather, there was a lot more fluidity to it. And what it came down to is in the, in the 
uh, in the establishment of these regimens was the concern of how to best calculate the opportune times and the appropriate frequencies. Again, not about saying what is off limits and what is not, but rather saying when, the, when should this occur and in what capacity and how one must understand whether or not that is best for them. So all the pleasures that one would engage in that would be, could, I guess, be classified as their desires, so the desire to procreate, the desire to, yeah, well, the desire to feel pleasure, the, these all presented problems for the individual because they were so appealing. How was the individual to then control, manage, and mandate that very thing that, in a sense, they could logically reason was gifted to them by nature? almost as though nature wanted them to engage in it. So, uh, as, as Foucault writes, and yet, while the use of pleasures constituted a problem in the individual's relationship with his own body and made it difficult to define a, a regimen for him, the reason lay not simply in the fact that this use was supposed, was suspected of being the source of certain illnesses or that people feared its consequences for their offspring. And the real concern came down, as Foucault notes, it came down to the very form of the act, the cost it entailed, and the death to which it was linked. And then he's going to move. We're going to move through these three things. So the first one, the violence of the act, is traced by Foucault through the work of uh, Diogenes, Plato, um, the Diocles, I think, even, uh, Jellius, Hipp Hippocrates, like a number of people, and instead of going through each of the individual examples, I'll just give you the uh, spark notes kind of conclusion he arrives at, where he says that the sexual act is analyzed from start to finish as a violent me mechanical action that is directed toward the emission of sperm. So it's very one-sided, one of course. I don't know of many women that uh, ex emit sperm, but, you know, here we have it. Well, I guess there would be a significant enough amount if we consider trans people, but, you know, I don't, I don't think Foucault had that in mind here, nor, yeah, maybe the Greeks did, I don't know. So the sexual act in the, you know, in its association with an act of emitting something does in itself imply a degree of competition or a kind of agonism, right? So as Foucault says, between these two acts having the same form in the man and in a woman, woman, because the woman undergoes some kind of similar process in the in the, in the womb, kind of heating up, getting ready for for like a battle, um, the Hippocratic text posits a relation that is causal and competitive at the same time, a contest, as it were, where the male plays the role of instigator and where he should always have the final victory. So then, as the example goes. Or we can just think of that certainly like today, t take our greatest example of sexuality that has been rammed down our throats, that is in the form of pornography, and pornography almost always exclusively ends when the man has an orgasm. Is that a coincidence? It's, it's incredibly arbitrary, like there's nothing to actually signal that that should be the end of sex, unless of course you only consider sex to be the act of penetration. Um, so this, what, this is what he calls the ejaculatory schema. So the ejaculatory schema through which sexual activity as a whole and in both sexes was always perceived shows unmistakably the near-exclusive domination of the virile model. 
So because the man undergoing some kind of a mission, a very kind of, you know, what we measure as being a conclusive moment, uh, for that reason, they are given privilege in the act of sex. So embedded within this very act is through it being a kind of competition, there is then embedded with it because men always dominate or they have, you know, historically dominated. Um, there is then a kind of violence occurring, a violence of man over woman. So, okay, that's, that's number one. That's the violence of the act. Now, number two, expenditure. So he says right, right off the bat, the sexual act extracted from the body a substance that was capable of impar imparting life but only because it was itself tied to the existence of the individual and claimed a portion of that existence. So, as he continues, by expelling their semen, living creatures did not just evacuate a surplus fluid, they deprived themselves of elements that were valuable for their own existence. So the value that was inputted onto semen was embedded within a, or was part of a kind of general broader uh, logic that privileged the act of being able to procreate over much else. So as Foucault says, the entire life of the individual, from youth when one needs to grow, to old age when one has so much trouble sustaining oneself, is marked by this relation of complementarity between the power to procreate and the capacity to develop or continue existing. So therefore, the act of sex expelling that thing that gives the human <laughs> nudge nudge the man a kind of power over the ability to procreate then diminishes then takes a toll on the life of that human so now the third component of it was through death and immortality so the act of sex gave people the opportunity to engage in a degree of immortality or as Foucault writes if animals united in sexual intercourse and if this relation gave them descendants, it was in order that the species might, as the laws put it, endlessly accompany the march of time. This was its way of cheating death, leaving the children of children behind it while remaining the same. It partakes of immortality by means of coming into being. So, as we understand it from the second concern, that is expenditure, where the excretion of semen kind of diminishes, kind of takes its toll on the human, we can see then that there is this link between death and immortality in the sexual act, at least how it was constructed in that kind of temporal framework, that temporal moment, where at one time, because it takes its toll on the individual, it kind of marks a death of the individual or the moment towards death for the individual. It also promotes the species in a way that will keep the possibility of individuals developing, kind of being able to come into being, to then procreate, and so on and so forth. So we see at the same time a kind of juncture, right, of death and immortality in the same instance. It's somewhat paradoxical, but here we have it. So Foucault says that this was part, all of these things were part of the you know, the desire to mandate and control the sexuality. So as he says, to give such, such explanations about the individual and the species, time and eternity, life and death, is to ensure that citizens will accept, in a frame of mind more favorably disposed, 
and therefore more apt to learn something. The prescriptions that are meant to regulate their sexual activity and their marriage. The reasonable regimen from their moderate life. So if someone were to essentially screw with that, were to mess with the regimen, they would not only be putting themselves at risk, which would in itself mark an offense against the community or against humanity in general, because you were kind of saying like, fuck you to what you were gifted with, but you were also saying no to the species because you weren't engaging in the proper means by which the species can continue in a kind of immortal way. So all this shows us that it was not, there was nothing wrong with sex in itself, but it was how it was conducted. So all of this self-control then pointed to what Foucault, as he kind of concludes this section, calls the art of the self, where it was given up to the individual to essentially make sure that they followed these guidelines, lest they be cast away, lest they be in there being cast away, almost paradoxically, they would be then absolved of their uh, individuality. They would be absolved of their selfness by being set free. So now we move into the third section, and that is economics, with the first part, the first chapter, I guess, uh, the wisdom of marriage. So Foucault starts this out by asking how, in what form, and why were sexual relations between husband and wife problematical in Greek thought? What reason was there to be worried about them? And above all, what reason was there to question the husband's behavior, to reflect on the moderation it necessitated, and in society to strongly, to, uh, sorry, to reflect on the moderation it necessitated, and in a society so strongly marked by the rule of free men, to make it a theme of moral preoccupation? So here we're going to get into this problem around monogamy and polygamy. So of this, Foucault says that around the central cluster of themes, a whole inquiry was to develop regarding the status of pleasures within the conjugal relationship. In this case, the problematization did not grow out of a polygamous structure, but out of a monogamous obligation, and it did not seek to tie the quality of the relationship to the intensity of pleasure and the variety of partners, but on the contrary, it sought to disassociate insofar as possible the constancy of a single conjugal relationship from the pursuit of pleasure. So keeping in mind what we discussed just earlier in the second section, pleasure was not the primary concern of the individual, right? A proper individual, you know, to exist as such, was to engage in sexual actions for the maintenance of the human species, for procreation. So it is in that, as, and I will reiterate or repeat what he says here, it sought to disassociate, insofar as possible, the constancy of a single conjugal relationship from the pursuit of pleasure. So this limitation of the possibility of pleasure had, you know, many more negative effects on women, especially how, in the as we understood from the first, second section there, uh, the act of sex was an act of violence that kind of enacted upon women, you know, to be feminist about it. Um, what we could see then is a transposition of that very violence into the realm of marriage. So the definition of what was allowed, forbidden, and prescribed for spouses by the institution of marriage and matters of sexual practice was simple enough and clearly symmetrical enough so that additional moral regulation did not appear necessary. As far as women were concerned, in fact, they were bound by their judicial and social status as wives 
all their sexual activity had to be within the conjugal relationship and their husband had to be their exclusive partner. They were under his power. It was to him that they had to give their children who would be citizens and heirs. In case of adultery, the punishment meted out was private, but it was also public. A woman guilty of adultery no longer had the right to appear in public religious ceremonies. So this kind of cultural and systemic disdain for women had many other negative you know, effects other than uh, ostracizing them from society, right, if, if they broke the law. So for his part, the husband was bound by a certain number of obligations towards his wife, right? So of course it wasn't just a one-way street where women were just expected to follow certain guidelines and men were simply let off the hook. However, Foucault says that the, the ramifications for men were much less severe than for women. So for instance, the rapist violated only the woman's body while the seducer violated the husband's authority. So, in this case, the seducer was, was worse than a rapist, whatever, you know, you know, try to wrap your head around that one. So, all things considered, he continues here, the married man was prohibited only from contracting another marriage. No sexual relation was forbidden him as a consequence of the marriage, of the marriage obligation he had entered into. He could have an intimate affair, he could frequent prostitutes, he could be the lover of a boy, to say nothing of the men or women slaves he had. In his household, at his disposal, a man's marriage did not restrict him sexually, whereas it did for women, of course. So, and Foucault kind of wraps that up into this thought, for while the wife belonged to the husband, the husband belonged only to himself. So, well, what does, what does all this have to do with the economics, right? Because that's, that's the title of the section, economics. The subjugation of women does not necessarily immediately equal uh, kind of individual profit or individual say in economic matters, where, you know, the Marxists would, would have their way with that and say, absolutely, it does automatically. Foucault's a little reticent to assume that. So he says, okay, what does this have to do with economics? Well, it all comes down to the household, in a sense. So he says, in thinking about the household, he uses the term oikos, right? Oikos meaning household. But he says it's, you know, more than just the household that pertains to what he says. Uh, the fields and possessions, um, so that, that all belong to that single property or that single kind of um, house. So what this did, at least how Foucault recognizes it, is it gave man an opportunity to kind of practice a degree of control and command that could then be transposed from the household into civil, civic life, right? So we can see a number of transpositions kind of occurring here. So there was the general logic associated with the sexual act as being an act of violence, a kind of domination over women, which is then transposed onto the marriage, which is then transposed onto the household, which can then be transposed onto civic life. So as Foucault, in his word, puts it, his words puts it, all these personal and civic advantages of the landowner's life center on what is given to be the principal merit of the economic art, it teaches the practice of commanding and is indissociable from the latter. To manage the oikos, the household, is to command and being in charge of the household is not different from the power that is to be exercised in the city. So for those that have read Aristotle's politics, that is exactly what he says in there, where, 
he sees in the politics that split between the private and the public, right, very clearly. What goes on in the household constitutes the private realm, and what goes on in the public constitutes the public realm, where the public is the place where the person can be a kind of active agent. What he says, and this is key, is that there are components of each to be found in the other. So it demands a certain degree of autonomy and agency to run a household, and it demands a certain degree of passivity, demands a certain degree of, I guess that's a good word, passivity or um, lack of control to belong to the public sphere, because you have to, there have to be those moments that you allow others to speak. So it's for that reason I think that we can, you know, certainly agree with Foucault that from the household to the public sphere, to civic life, there can be this kind of transition from one to the other. There can be the transposition of some of the components in that into the other, from one into the other. So then Foucault kind of identifies the many regulations that were imposed, you know, unwritten kind of laws, that mandated the house, that controlled it. So the first one, as he takes from Isomachus, was that there, the man controlled the woman. The woman was to be sub subordinate to the man. So there are actual duties then in the second uh, kind of set of laws or whatever, um, or the second regulation, whatever, unwritten code, uh, was that the man was the one responsible for bringing provisions, oops, bringing provisions into the house, right? So they would, they would sow the land, reap the benefits, you know, till the soil, be able to get stuff out of the soil that they brought into the, the house, whereas it was the woman's responsibility uh, to regulate those things that were brought in and what would go out. So the regulator of the household confined to the walls. So this was justified by their differing physical qualities. So as Foucault says, this comes, you know, this was bestowed upon them by the gods. So the physical traits, first of all, to men who must work in the open air, plowing, sowing, planting, herding, they gave the, the capacity to endure cold, heat, and journeys on foot. Women who work indoors were given bodies that are less resistant. Character traits as well. Women have a natural fear, but one that has positive effects. It induces them to be mindful of the provisions, to worry about losing them, to be in dread of using them up. The man, on the other hand, is brave, for he's obliged to defend himself outdoors against everything that might cause him injury. So, all of these things will then be enacted to maintain the kind of third code, that is the maintenance of the woman as being a kind of beautiful object of consumption. So, um... Go up the eh, passage. Eh, da, 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 da. So, in the same way, it is good for the mistress of the house to mix flour and knead dough and to shake out and fold the bed covers. In this way, the body's handsomeness will be shaped and maintained. The condition of mastery has its physical version, which is beauty. And then, further, the wife's clothes have a freshness and elegance that set her apart from her servants. In any case, she will always enjoy an, an advantage over the latter from the fact that she seeks willingly to, ple to please instead of being obliged to submit under compulsion like a slave girl. So the pleasure that one takes by force is much less agreeable than that which is freely offered. So the wife was supposed to be free to be taken advantage of, right? That's essentially how it was framed here. And it was a freedom that was crafted, very kind of... Uh, selected freedom, right? The freedom to be beautiful, the freedom to work in the house, 
right? And you can only work within the parameters of that freedom. So then we move from this into what Foucault in the third chapter of this section calls the three policies of moderation. So again, I'm not going to get into all the specific examples because Foucault gives a lot of plot, a lot of detail out of uh, Greek kind of Greek, Greek playwrights and, and novelists, I guess, and philosophers that which is just too much. So I'm trying my best here to kind of craft a kind of coherent narrative through it that someone can cling on to without being burdened or without me going too far astray into all these kind of individual examples, which wouldn't be difficult to do. It would just pretty much involve doing plot summaries that are um, would would represent more of a digression than anything else. With that being said, it is important to know that Foucault is really just drawing upon text when he's doing this, right? So he says that indicative of all these texts that he looks at, it was not as though the husband was committed to his wife and that that is what motivated them to stay together. Rather, it was a kind of political strategy. So it is the result of a political regulation, as Foucault writes, that is imposed by fiat in the case of, of the Platonic laws, or in the case of Isocrates or Aristotle, by the husband himself through a sort of deliberate self-limitation of his power. So then we enter into the first of the three policies of moderation, which begins by stating, you know, taking again from Plato, that there was a proper age for men to marry and procreate and a proper age for women to marry and procreate. And pretty much all, like, you know, more than just the age, like how people were to engage in their sexual activity was to be kind of regulated and moderated, right? But, and here I gotta, I gotta dip into Plato a little bit. Uh, Foucault takes out of Plato four things that are important that transcend the law. Right, So the law for Plato can only do so much in mandating these kinds of uh, sexual acts. So he says that the four are public opinion, glory, the honor of the human being, which I don't know how that is different from glory, but we'll get into it, and then shame. So public opinion, quite clearly, how will you be seen in the eyes, or well, what does everyone agree on, the kind of social contract, which is... I guess safe to say for that one. So what is needed for that in the in the face of shameless sexual acts is a kind of unanimous public voice to be sanctified. So now number two, glory. So Plato cites, this is Foucault, Plato cites the example of athletes who, in their desire to win a victory in the games, place themselves under a strict regimen not going near a woman or a boy either. The whole time of their training, surely victory over those internal enemies, the pleasures is finer than the victory over one may win over rivals. So it's that kind of carrot on the end of the stick, like what one will get from their abstinence or from their um, careful regimen of their sexual activity. Number three, the honor of the human being. And I'll just read this one again. Uh, here, Plato gives an example that will be used often subsequently. He speaks of those animals which live in bands, each in the midst of others, but which live celibate, pure, and chaste. When the age for procreation is reached, they separate from the group and pair into couples that will last. And then four, we have shame. By reducing the frequency of sexual activity, shame will weaken this way of this mistress. Without there being the need to prohibit the acts, it will be held noble 
to engage in them if one escapes notice, and people will have to learn that to commit them openly is shameful by the custom laid down in habit and unwritten law. So now the second policy of moderation has to do with the kind of political opportunities that could be granted. So beginning this section, uh, Foucault draws upon a text by Socrates, which has the form of an address to Nicocles to his fellow citizens. An explicit connection is established between the views of moderation and marriage it sets forth and the exercise of political power. So this text that Foucault draws from paints the portrait of a kind of sovereign that is able to take a, they believe themselves to be able to engage in the kind of political authority that they are engaging in precisely because of the austerity that they've placed upon themselves in relation to sexual activity. And they correlate that with their, you know, or they correlate their political prowess with that, uh, that regimen. So in Foucault's words, the prince's relationship with himself and the manner in which he forms himself as an ethical subject are an important component of the political structure. His austerity is part of it, contributing to its solidity. The prince, too, must practice an ascesis and exercise himself. So then the third policy now, we move into the question of the husband's kind of control over the wife and what that means for them in relation to society. So he draws a distinct, Foucault draws a distinction there between uh, Xenophon and Aristotle, the former, who argues that the husband's moderation is an appropriate style for a vigilant and wise master of a household, while Aristotle says, sure, that is good, good point, but really what's going on is that um, uh, what the, hus the husband's interaction with his wife and that sort of makeup, that sort of uh, interaction, uh, forms a different kind of justice that should govern relations of humans in society, right? So we see a transposition in Aristotle from the simple makeup of the husband and the wife onto the broader domain of justice in society at large. So quoting the Nicomachean Ethics, I like how earlier I was like, no, I'm not going to get into the, the individual texts. And I'm and I was like, I had my notes, and like, no, nah, I gotta, there's no way around it. So, uh, quoting the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, Aristotle, Foucault notes that the association of man and wife seems to be aristocratic, for the man rules in accordance with his fitness, and in those matters in which man should rule, which implies, now this is Foucault, as in every aristocratic government, that he will delegate to his wife the part she is suited to play. If he tried to do everything by himself, the husband would transform his authority into an oligarchy. So the relationship with the wife is thus posited as a question of justice, which is, which is linked directly to the political nature of the marriage bond. So all of these then point, I, th I think quite well, uh, to this idea of economics and how economics has this kind of connection with the kind of ascetic values, or with with ascetic values. So it's. There, there's, there's some Weber in this too, kind of oddly enough. Um, but yeah, anyways, and concluding off this, this section, Foucault, Foucault writes, the last line, uh, th that the wife's virtue constituted the correlative and the proof of a submissive behavior. The man's austerity was part of an ethics of self-delimiting domination. So at, his, at the, you know, what from our... Uh, point of view, 
seeing the woman as being attaining her degree of virtue would only be a virtue under the subordination of uh, a man. Whereas the man's austerity, the man's asceticism, was in favor of his taking command of not only his household, but being a commander in the political, in the, I guess, in the civic sphere as well. So I think I'll stop there. That, that'll round it off till the last chapter. Um, I hope that that was helpful. I, this, I'm, I'm rather ambivalent about this text in the third volume. Like, it's, they are, they're not as fun to read. Like, they're just as important, obviously, but they kind of, I don't know, they just, they feel so analytical, and it's, it's like he's gone, he went back to his, like, really, like, the order of things, Foucault, which is like, oh, God, it's brutal. Um, but yeah, whatever. I could be way off with that. But for any of those that listened, thank you. Uh, you know, keep listening, I hope. If you have any problems with what I said, fuck, please put me, you know, put me in my place. But for now, 